Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the Mid-Alt that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. If you listen on the Entail app, that's E-N-T-A-L-E, photos, links and videos of what we're talking about will pop up as you listen. Have a look. Hi everyone, I'm Emily and I'm absolutely fine, but I seem to have lost the ability to relax completely at all. I don't know whether it's the last few weeks or whether it's just a general kind of corona the corona coaster coming to a kind of you know peak or trough or whatever but I am I literally I feel like I'm in permanent fight or flight mode I can't sleep for longer than an hour and a half in a row and generally I feel sort of I feel so tense it's intense <sighs> oh you and the rest of them us, I should say. I just feel so disassociated from humankind. I'm like, the rest of them. <laughs> yes, exactly. Whoever they are outside. I know. But it's one. Anyway, how are you, Annabelle? Uh, I'm Annabelle and I'm absolutely fine. But I now eat chicken Kiev every night. And it's not good for my body or my soul or my spirit, frankly. But I also have suddenly realised that I'm not alone. I've had a few conversations with people. Maybe it's that kind of 80s food thing. There's lots of that going on, spaghetti bolognese, prawn cocktail, but the chicken Kiev thing. And I was, I was on a walk with a friend the other day, about the third person who said, oh, is it the M&S gastropub one? And I went, yeah, yeah, it is. And she went, I really like that one, big. <laughs> we both nodded at each other and went, yeah. It's big. So, I mean, and you know, I can just about summon up the energy to boil some peas to go with it. But it is, this is not good. Well, you are in the right place, right time, Annabelle. I can't remember a time when we've been so obsessed and exhausted by food. So thank goodness our next guest is here to reset our relationship with cooking. No pressure. Sky Gingell came to fame when she turned a shed at Petersham Nurseries into a Michelin-starred kitchen. Now she has her own gaff, Spring at Somerset House, with its Corona Times offshoot delivery service, Spring to Go. She's also the culinary director of Hot Hampshire Hotel, Heckfield Place. We need ideas, Sky. But first, how are you? I'm absolutely fine, except for the little mouse that has taken up residence in my house. <laughs> a friend! <laughs> a friend, yeah. <laughs> when did you first notice your friend? So, the, um, so this little mouse kind of appeared probably about six months ago. And actually, it's interesting you said that, because he came a sort of month before my um, youngest daughter left home for the first time. So in a funny way, he is company, but um, I was, um, he's just so, he's becoming so brazen and I think he really feels like he's just sharing this house with me now. So I see him a lot and um, I'm just very conflicted about what to do about him because actually there's a part of me that really likes him, but I know it's not okay to have a mouse living in my house. And I know there's probably not just one mouse. The one person I think I'm living with may be a thousand. So, oh, yes. Um, How do you know if it's so, even the same mouse? I know. Well, I don't think it can be. That's the whole problem. And so it is a little bit worrying. And sometimes I feel very... There's lots of things I live on. Um, you know, I sort of... now I do now live on my own. And there are so many things that I've learned to do. Kind of like, I've, you know, I fixed the heating once on my own. I've Did of, you, you know, use a YouTube video? I used a YouTube, I Googled everything and YouTube. And, and did you feel so like a so, superwoman? I did. I felt terrifically proud of myself, yeah. I always feel the most proud of myself on the, the tiniest achievements because they're the ones that I often really struggle with. Bank the good stuff. You Bank have the to, good right? stuff, have yeah. you Have you named your mouse? 
Yes, I told Evie this morning, who's my oldest daughter, I've co- I, I've co- it's a man, I, I don't know why, and I, I've called him Stephen. I don't think this is long-term relationships, Guy. No, I, I completely agree. But actually, at the same time, I, am, I feel like anything I do to get rid of the mouse will be not nice for the mouse, and that actually there is some sort of like, um, emotional attachment there. Do you, Stephen, like do you your feed food? the mouse? Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, no, I do not feed the mouse. But I do know that the mouse has a whole like little ritual going on because I watch what it does. It lives, goes from underneath somewhere. Because, you know, they can literally like literally slip in through the tiniest spaces. So I see it go, it, it lives in the boiler room. It comes out, has a little feed, walks across the kitchen, comes across the sitting room about eight o'clock at night. Like, it's just like, so, I mean, it's obviously feeding itself, but I'm not quite sure. I haven't seen any droppings, that's the thing. Like, and I actually have had the rent-a-kill man round and he, and he told me the mouse was the least of my problems and I didn't quite know what he meant by that. <laughs> that's really good. Yeah, that's such a burn. I know. It's like, is it moths? Is it like what, you know, I just I had no idea. And so then Stephen's not back. leaving any droppings anywhere. So Stephen's like, don't mind me, just act like I'm not here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'll be very tidy. So you, you presumably cook for yourself every night. Do you cook for yourself every night? Or do you, you know, have a bowl of cereal? Actually, um, I don't have a bowl of cereal, but I, I really understand that sort of run of food that you were describing. Like, I'm sure probably before the chicken Kiev, there was something else that you kind of was your go-to. And then you kind of almost kind of run it till it's really run its course. And then you probably move on to something else. Yeah. And I actually think probably quite a lot of people do that. And um, I don't do a bowl of cereal, but I mean, my go-to always is bread, butter and cheese. I mean, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Having been, you know, having been at home for the best part of a year and, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, breakfast, lunch, we're not used to having to generate the thinking behind the food. Yeah. So with reopening, yeah. what we want to try and understand is how, we, is, is how to sort of reopen our minds and hearts to producing interesting easy food so if we start with seasonal stuff yeah because i think you know because everything's in the supermarket if we're talking about let's say april may june what should we be looking at what's what's easy and delicious and good for us that isn't boiled peas well the very interesting thing about april may and june and if you're talking about seasonality and especially eating locally and when when we talk about locally we're we're i think we're really um talking about eating within our country as opposed to sort of like five miles down the road we're in somewhere called the Hunger Gap, which is actually the beginning of spring up until sort of probably the second week of June is a very, very fallow time for produce in this country because what actually happens in spring, it is a time of new beginnings, but it's actually really, especially with farms, it's a, it's a time when you, you literally clear the land from what's been in the ground since, um, since the winter months. And what happens with food in the ground in winter months, like especially all the brassicas and certainly some of the root vegetables, they're almost like they're in a freezer. So actually, although they're ready in November, December, cabbages, brassicas, you know, cavalloneros, you know, broccoli, cauliflower in the first half before Christmas, and they actually will stay in the ground happily until you're ready to harvest them. Whereas, you know, obviously a tomato will rot on the vine or, a, you know. Um, and so you clear the whole ground away and you replant for spring and su- for late spring and summer. So 
there's almost nothing available <laughs> asparagus? until mid-June. I always think... So asparagus <laughs> is the earliest, and that will come sort of mid, um, like the second half of April till the first week of June. It's got a six-week season technically. I mean, we do see things with polytunnels and glass houses and stuff like that, where you do it, food is brought on slightly more early than it would be if it was left to its own devices. But there's wild garlic. There's really no fruit at all in this country until June, which you'll start to get, you know, sort of cherries and then strawberries will be the first. Goosebreeze will come then. And then the, the other soft fruits like raspberries, loganberries, jostaberries, all of those things come later in the season. I mean, actually, seasons are very, very tight and there isn't food around all the time. And actually, you know, things like butter is a way of preserving milk. Cheese is a way of preserving milk. You know, all those kind of sauerkrauts, kimchi, they're all a way of just keeping food because food isn't necessarily available completely all year round. Mm -mm. If we wanted to um, to maybe start to um, reignite our uh, taste buds, and and I'm looking at my sort of desolate little garden and think about growing some herbs maybe. Yeah. Where would you start with that? How would you start with that? Well, I think really with herbs, I mean, I think you can grow almost anything in the smallest of places. So if you have a sunny windowsill, for example, or a little sunny bit in your garden, but you need a little pot if you want a pot of basil or rosemary or thyme, or um, if you want to put a little bay tree in your garden, but they will grow in anywhere sunny. And actually, I don't know, herbs are pretty expensive to buy, like basil. And as soon as you put it in the fridge and it opens to the air, it's going to die anyway. It gets, you know, you use, you get a bunch of basil and you have to have a few leaves and you put it back in the fridge and it's probably slightly brown and quite limp. And so actually it's a really lovely, super easy. And as with most plants, you, you water things very, very little. I think my big problem that I did for a really long time was just overwater everything. I've killed so many basil plants. Literally. From overwatering, yeah, probably. I think from yeah. uh, from a com- sort of vicious combination of overwatering and neglect, which seems like the sort of yeah, way. yeah, and I, and I and it's it's such a kind of try. You think, oh, you come home from the supermarket and you were like, I was like, oh, this is it. This is where I'm going to make my pesto or or just chop up some basil to put on a tomato salad or whatever. And then uh, and the first time is great, and then by the end it's sort of just another kind of <laughs> a sign of my deep failure. I've got a little um, courtyard garden, like a little. Um, potted garden and I live in West London tiny little garden but actually I grow it's I I mean I grow tomatoes in there every summer I grow often um, a a pot of like rhubarb I've got a artichoke in there which is actually beautiful because it's this amazing thistle and actually I've never taken an artichoke from it because it probably only has one (laughs) and then I have just pots of you know I have a bay tree I have rosemary I have like I have sage I have marjoram I have basil and it's really lovely because I think there's such a kind of, I think you very rarely have the herbs in the fridge that you really want. Yeah. You, do you know what I mean? Except for basil. But, you know, actually when you have a garden, it just kind of, it's lovely because you can add like tarragon to your roast chicken or, you know, a couple of bay leaves. Also, why is tarragon, stuff. why is tarragon so hard to find? I think it's probably not a traditionally, um, I mean, the French, for example, adore tarragon and you'll see it everywhere. I think it's probably never been particularly in our repertoire. I mean, yeah, a lot I got of people... really into tarragon last year and then realised that I just couldn't seem to buy it anywhere and then yeah. I felt sad and carried on with my chicken gear. What are your go-tos, apart from bread and cheese, for, mm. you know, just sort of simple suppers or ways to think about producing simple suppers that don't involve too many pans, you know, mm-hmm. complicated shopping or overstretching our already highly compromised brains? So I'm definitely a big one of 
making sure I've got time to cook. So that kind of rushed cooking when everything becomes a bit stressed, I don't enjoy that any more than anybody else does. And so especially when the kids were still at home and even still now, I'm really a one pot person. So I'll kind of set some time aside. I'll probably go to a farmer's market on Sunday morning. It gives me immense pleasure like to, to kind of just like talk to like the farmers or see what's going on. I, I think it's very ritualistic. Grab a coffee, take your, you know, your shopping bag with you and stuff. And then I do a lot of, I do a lot of kind of dishes that will kind of almost sit out on top of the stove for two or three days. I, like, so I'll do either like really simple, like, uh, like a chicken, like sort of casserole, or I'll do lots and lots of kind of um, vegetable soups that kind of have a lot of pulses or grains in them, whether they be like cannellini beans or bolotti beans or farro or, and then I make a really big vat of it. And then all of those dishes are probably nicer. They love to cool and then be reheated. So they're almost better on day two or day three than on day one. They've kind of really found their feet. And then I would do a lot of, and, and then I can take the time. I really enjoy it. You know, use a lot of beautiful olive oil, great ingredients. And, and then I will come home and you can warm it up gently, make a green salad to go with it, make a slice of rye bread and butter. And I mean, that's the kind of um, cooking that I found worked best for me at home. And is that cooking, I mean, quite easy if you've got some pulses in the drawer, yeah. some herbs at hand, some yeah. decent meat and bits and pieces of vegetables. Where would you start with a sort of, you know, like a super simple chicken in a pot? Yeah, so I mean, I think you're just quickly on that. I think you're really right. I tend to have a really well stocked pantry. So I've, if you go into my pantry, it's got lots of dry pulse, you know, like dried chickpeas, like dried beans, like uh, brown rice, barley, farro, whatever. Really good, like sort of anchovies, olive oil, grape vinegar, some good mustards. I've got like a full shop in my, you know, of all the things that dried chilies, you know, all of those things. And so you don't ever have to do a really big shop. And like in my garden, exactly, I have all the herbs growing that I want. And then like something like a chicken casserole. I mean, the things are endless. So if you take a lovely chicken, you sort of brown it gently all over on top of the stove, uh, clean out the pan. Sometimes what I would do is put, it's like a, a pot chicken pot. I want to say chicken pot pie, it's not, but it's like a one pot chicken. You'd put it back in. Sometimes I just scatter like a cup of kind of rice, like a cannaroli or a risotto rice plug a half bottle of white wine in there and like three bunches of basil, put the lid on, leave it for an hour and you've kind of got this kind of gooey, sticky, whiny, basil-y rice and this kind of chicken that's almost steamed because it's got a lid on so it hasn't dried out. Or I might do the, exactly the same thing, but if it's like, like there are lots of pumpkins and gourds around, I'll, I'll just brown the chicken so you get a lovely colour, pop it back, put a whole lot of peeled and chopped big chunks of sort of pumpkin, like either an onion squash, butternut squash, whatever's easy you've got to hand, you can buy locally. Uh, put in a couple of tin, a tin of tomato and then I finish it off with some mascarpone, some sage, some dried chili. You can have that with mashed potato. Delicious. Or could you put the potatoes in instead of the squash? Chuck it you all in. You could put the potatoes in. You yeah. can put like slices of smoky bacon, potato, thyme. You know, it's kind of endless. You could put in the summer, you could just put a whole lot of courgettes fresh ripe tomatoes, some aubergines in there, thyme, you know, kind of got that kind of chicken and ratatouille sort of thing. Can I ask two like super basic questions? Are yeah. you putting in a whole chicken? Like a, like yeah, a... I would put in a whole chicken. And are, yeah. you, are you cooking it in the oven? Like, no, I keep it on top of the stove. With a lid on. So like a big... With like, a lid on. So a big pot. So, 
Yeah, like if you had a big, I mean, maybe not a Le Creuset, but kind of one, a, quite a good quality heavy base pan. Like you could definitely transfer it to the oven if you want to, but you don't actually need to. You can just keep it on a really low heat on top of the stove with the lid on. Sometimes if there's a lot of steam, you can just put the lid slightly ajar so it's letting out a little bit of... And honestly, I, I think, I suppose it is confidence. I think the thing is about cooking, it's just like have a go. Yeah. You know, and I think all the mistakes, every time I've, you know, ever done anything over the years, you go, oh, I've got an idea to do something. I'm going to put potatoes and smoky bacon in like we were just talking about. Go, actually, that didn't really work or I really needed, it would have been better with some garlic in that. And then the next time... That's in your bank, isn't it? And you think, oh, yeah, I love that. I remember it needed a bit of garlic. And you just kind of build on your repertoire. I mean, I do think it's like not being too scared to make a mistake with food. Yeah, I think as well to not like, I don't even know how long, how long with the minimum amount of time would you be able, would you have to steam the chicken? <laughs> She's I'm terrified of killing actually, people. No, well, that would actually be, I mean, obviously depending on the size of the chicken, but it actually would only be, be between about 45 minutes. You'll cook it actually quicker than you would in the oven. Okay. Um, to an hour if it was big, you know, and you'll see it because it'll, it, the, the breast will feel quite firm. If you, if you wanted to pierce the thigh with something sharp, probably the juices will run out fairly clean, you know, and, and actually the legs will slightly relax. They're sort of like the bit between your, the um, foot and the ankle will slightly shrink back. So you'll have an exposure, you know, on the drumstick kind of thing. I, um, I mean, I went through a phase of, of poaching chickens like this because it yeah. made me feel kind of great about myself because it feels like yeah. proper cooking. So you don't get the crispy skin that you would get on a roast chicken in the oven, but you get a extraordinary quality of sort of delicious, non-dried out, yeah. deli de yeah. with flavour. I mean, it really delivers a, a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. And the bones and things really flavor all the other ingredients that are in it. Yeah, it is really lovely. And you, you get what you don't, you brown it before it goes in. So you, the skin won't take, stay crisp because of all the steaming that's going on. But you'll get a kind of pleasing color yeah. on it. So you won't have to sort of, I mean, that lovely poached chicken is divine as well. You know, and we make that a lot at home. We make versions of chicken soup where you kind of, you poach a whole chicken in a lot of water. You add a lot of aromatics and like, um, you know, celery, carrots, leeks, and you kind of make a lovely chicken broth that is a stock, and then you maybe put noodles in it, chili. I did exactly that yeah. on Friday slash Saturday because it's all the boiling and the time. And I walked into the kitchen, and, and, and all the windows had steamed up. There was condensate, and it was all happening. <laughs> I felt like my whole house was coated in chicken. But it's, you know, that's when it gets quite. I know what you mean. That's when it gets relaxing and therapeutic is when it, you're not in a massive hurry and it gets quite ritualistic and I always think that when you do get back into cooking and I and I and for most of my life I have been it's just something strange has happened to me like something something strange different strange things have happened to all of us over the last year but there's something super relaxing particularly for anxious people I think whereby when you're just slowly you know cooking and playing around you can just absent-mindedly pick up a bit of onion that you've dropped exactly. shake a bit of salt you're not in this hypervigilant state that we spend most yeah. of our days yeah, no, totally. And I would really say that, you know, if, um, I, I mean, for me, to, I do get stressed as well. You know what I mean? People always say, how do you have a kind of, the fact is, if I have people for dinner, obviously, which hasn't happened for a really long time, they come in, they lean against my stove, they're having a glass of wine, they're talking to me. What I really want to say to them is, can you just be quiet? <laughs> you know, I'm just trying to concentrate. I don't feel any differently from you, you because like we work in a kitchen where everybody's just work focused. But when you have to kind of try and entertain, 
and kind of get the timings of everything right. It is really stressful. So, I mean, my favorite cooking at home is definitely you put on some music or you put on Radio 4, maybe there's no one in the house, you've got the kitchen to yourself and you do exactly that. You put a little bit of salt in, you have a little bit of taste, you know, you might either wander off, you're listening to a podcast, whatever. And then it's just, it's this really beautiful, like it feels like a very relaxing thing to do. But, it, you know, cooking for kids and deadlines and getting kids to bed and homework and all of the stuff that we all do in our busy lives makes cooking um, a sort of chore rather than a pleasure. Yeah, I think that's completely true. And I always think when I used to have people to dinner, my ideal thing would have been to have them there, start the cooking, chat, 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 have a couple of glasses of wine, then I'd like to put the food on the table and leave. By that point, I'm tired and I'm done. I've done my relaxation ritual. Here, have the pot of chilli. I'm just going to go and have a bath. I'm going to bed now. (laughs) Also, there's so much pressure for you, Sky, because people, no one has ever come for dinner at my house expecting good food. But presumably people are like, okay, yeah, we're at going to Sky's for supper. It's going to be delish. (laughs) Do Do you know what? That's so interesting that you say that because so many people say to me, oh my God, I'd be so scared to cook for you. I can't have you, I can't have you for dinner. I'd be really, really scared. And I think you have no idea how grateful I am to have anything that you'll put in front of me. I don't care if it's fish fingers, fingers and peas, like as long as the emphasis is not on me. I would never judge anybody's cooking at their house. You know what I mean? And we do it as a, we do it. We have a huge team, a big backup, a lot of support, and we do it for a living. But I do feel when people come to my house, like, I feel like an anxious teacher, almost anxious, because I think people are going to think this is going to have to be the best meal of their life. They're coming, and it's like shit. I might really let them down. It's a bit like if you're known for being brilliantly witty, yeah, and you think, oh god, I hope I don't have an off day. <laughs> yeah, going to think, oh, exactly this will be hilarious, thing. or or you know, I'm sure it goes for anything at all. Yeah, clever, beautiful, yeah. She's you know, not kind. That clever. What do you she's not that? She's not that nice. She was a bit of a bitch yeah. to me just now. Yeah. You said exactly. she was really... She's Her... far prettier in pictures. It is. It's that expectation you feel that people have on you that really puts pressure on you. I'm going to chuck something else at you now, which is, we've got our chicken. Okay, I'm now looking at a fish or a piece uh-huh. of fish. I've got mm. some foil. Maybe I've got some... What can I do with this fish? Well, so, I mean, obviously, depending... I mean, you can do this with both things. And fish is something that does throw people a lot. I I do know that. But say, for example, if you either had a whole fish, say you had a whole sea bass or a tranche of fish, you know, um, whether it be like a turbot or a piece of salmon. I mean, one of the really nice things to do is you did mention foil. It is actually really nice to sort of like preheat the oven, get it really hot, put your fish, like say we had a whole sea bass, Put, um, put it on foil and then do any kind of lovely things that you'd, um, you know, I often do pinwheels of lemon, I do lots of herbs scattered over the top, you could put a bit of chili on there, garlic is often a bit too strong and it's, it's a really like a prawn or something that's got a very strong texture and then you seal it but you almost make, it's what the French call en papillot. Which so you make is, it poofy. Poofy, exactly. <laughs> it's the technical then, term, I believe. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then you put it in the oven and uh, on the middle shelf. Always put everything on the middle shelf of the oven. It's where there's the most um, even heat distribution. Um, and, then, and then just cook it like that. And then what you're doing is trapping the flavors in. And most of those things will take about sort of between t- 10 and 12 minutes in the oven. And then I guess you get, you get the flavor. I mean, you could either do a, a glove of perno, a dollop of creme fraiche, you know, and seal it and make a little sauce. 
or some really freshly, beautifully ripe tomatoes that will kind of collapse into the fish. And then I would serve it with like a good glug of olive oil or kind of wedge of lemon, you know, and any sauces that you might like, a salsa verde or an aioli or mayonnaise or... I had that the other night. I just had this big tranche of turbot, which I just put in the oven like for 12 minutes. Hadn't eaten turbot probably for a year. And I was just like, oh my God, you yeah. are the king of the sea. <laughs> Do you know what a really good friend of mine did not so long ago? Because I'm thinking about all these things. Thinking, well, that's easy and that's great. And remembering when I went through my homemade tartar sauce phase. And I remember, you know. And um, but what she did was she swapped her Ocado order with her sister-in-law. Oh, because my, you know, all our, all the people who do the bulk of our shopping, maybe there's a bit from the butcher, a bit from the, um, a bit from the, uh, the farmer's market, but basically, you know, it gets delivered most of it. Yeah. And what she got was a completely unfamiliar fridge. So she had to think again. And I think that's, that's really interesting. So yeah. yeah. That's genius. I'm sorry. I feel like that's a terrifying thing. <laughs> I already find it hard enough to look inside my fridge and have ideas and I've been, I'm in control of it. So the idea of surrendering that control on top makes me scared. <laughs> I can see that, but I can see, see that we all tend to just buy the same thing all the time, you know, and very often like we buy it and we haven't checked in our fridge before we've actually used it. Exactly. You know, so then you get all this kind of food waste thing, don't you? But um, I think we're all guilty of that. I tell you what I discovered this um this lockdown a lockdown discovery was Harissa. Oh yeah, great. That's super helpful, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, what shop ports Harissa? I'm afraid so, Sky. Yeah, I mean, that's okay. Yeah, that's good. No, it's great because it's great on any grilled meats. So it's beautiful with lamb Harissa. It works really well. It's got all those lovely North African kind of spices and flavors. Great with beef. You can do it with also with fish, a dollop on any with any of those fish is really great. I mean, that's very much how I cook, very, very simply. And then we have a hundred little what I call top hats that we put on the top. So I tend to kind of grill, steam, right? very simple cooking. And then I'll always I mean we do make it, but you don't have to make it. I mean, we would either either put a chimichurri, a salsa verde, a kind of like um, cumin spice salsa verde harissa, aioli, lemon mayonnaise, dollop of creme fraiche with preserved lemon folded through it. And we kind of put these, what we, what we call top hats on them to kind of just bring the food alive. So those kind of little condimenty things are really uh, secret weapons. And then a really good steamed or grilled simple good piece yeah, of something. Exactly, really simple and plain and you really liven it up with the harissa for example. Okay, so I've got, so there I am staring at a couple of, you know, slightly exhausted looking little gems and an avocado. Yeah. What can I do for my little bit of salad to just zing it up a bit? You know, um, I mean, I, you know, what I've discovered, I tell you what else I've discovered recently is zesting. I mean, I'd zest you if I could. I'm zesting everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, lime zest through rice, this, that, things to make things just a little bit less. Yeah, we use a lot of zest. We put lemon zest on almost lemon. And I mean, lemon, I would say, was my secret ingredient in the kitchen. Like, not a lot for acidity, but two or three drops for brightness. And then at the same time, we great. We put probably um, lemon zest through almost everything. Yeah, lemon zest is a it's a proper secret weapon, isn't it? But when it, I don't know what that came to my mind when I was talking about sort of salads. But what little tricks can you do to turn? So with say say you had a couple of little gem in the fridge and you've got an avocado that's probably really ripe. I mean, what you actually could do instead of just doing the little gem and like chunks of avocado in there, 
you can actually make a sauce called Green Goddess, which is, you, you can use avocados in the sauce. So it's sort of a mayonnaise-based sauce which, to which you have sort of pounded avocado and lots of herbs and lemon juice. So the avocado becomes a dressing as opposed to just kind of chunks in it. And that's quite good for an avocado that's almost on the turn. And you'll see it anywhere. It's a very, Americans do great salad dressings, really. I mean, not the super commercial ones, but actually all the different, you know, Caesar dress, they're great. They love salads, Americans, and it's very much a part of, uh, you know, they often have a salad as kind of salad, but it's called Green Goddess, full of any herbs you've got in the garden, and it's really delicious. And when you say pound, do you mean like crush it in a, in, do you mean well, with I it altogether? Like pestle, yeah, yeah, but, or, or do it in, um, if you've got a, a, mag, a Nutribullet, if you could puree it, put a bit of um, olive oil in there, some lemon juice, a, a dollop of like even Hellman's mayonnaise and then just blitz it and put lots of herbs in it. You'll make a lovely dressing that you can toss, you know, and then if you had any bread that was like, if you had a bit of sourdough that, you know, you bought two days ago and you, uh, it's not like that great to eat fresh. I mean, grill it, rub it with garlic and drizzle it with olive oil, tear it up, toss it through that salad, like for kind of crunch. And you kind of got a kind of textural, quite, you know, nice, interesting salad that you could, I didn't realise how easy it was just to rip up a bit of sourdough or ciabatta, chuck some olive oil sauce on it, put it in the oven for 10 minutes and yeah. suddenly you have a situation on your hands. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have a question for you. When yes. is it okay to use dried herbs? Um, is that a slow cooking situation? So, yeah, I mean, dried herbs, um, m m m most of them become, are, are quite musty. You know, it's very hard to get, you, they lose their freshness they oxidize very quickly. And so they're probably a very distant memory of what the actual fresh herb tasted like, except for things like mint, which dries really well. And you use that specifically in Moroccan cooking a lot is dried mint. But I mean, look, if you've got dried herbs, just use them sparingly. You can be a lot more generous with fresh herbs because they're much purer and they're probably not going to, they're going to be very there, but they're not going to overtake the flavor of the food whereas if you put in a huge handful of dried thyme you know you could actually just end up tasting that and nothing yeah. else and then you've got sort of yes i remember that from my my student cooking um and then yeah. I'm, and then and just 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 being a bit sort of process i never really understood how to produce a simple pudding that isn't here's a bowl of grapes and some cheese or yeah. here's some dark chocolate and a satsuma I'm yeah, really befuddled cheap, by, well, yeah. that's what I think. Break it up, put it in I a agree. mirror. I agree, I'm with you. But, um, but, but when it comes to thinking, right, okay, I, I, you know, I mean, you know, should I make a posset? <laughs> What's a posset? What can we do to put something on the table? Whether it's just, you know, you do it with some yogurt and some puree. Or, I know that the solutions are out there, but what do they look like? Well, you know what? It's, um, actually, I was going to suggest posset because it is incredibly <laughs> easy. You know, it's like it's cream with sugar that's cooked on top of the stove and then finished with lemon juice. Um, and then literally take it off and you strain it and put it into a container and put it in the fridge. And it sets like this really silky, elegant sort of custard, sharp custard. So you don't need gelatin or anything? No gelatin in a posset. It's three ingredients. It's lemon juice, sugar and cream. When you say cream, uh, do you mean double cream, single cream? Double cream. Double cream. Yeah. Sorry, I'm literally I mean, like... with, No, that's fine. Just as a rule of thumb with that one is uh, single cream is really only used for pouring. If you want to cook, I would always cook with a double cream. And so that sets, and then you can, you know, put it with some sliced strawberries or like if it's, um, it's beautiful with, you can put posset with anything, you know, some like a little compote of gooseberries. It loves the sort of 
uh, like a little fruit. But actually, when you just said yogurt then, um, my daughter um, had a birthday and she's kind of, she's not really a fussy eater, but she's a super healthy eater. And I couldn't like give her, she wouldn't probably eat a birthday cake or anything. So actually my mom used to make for us when we were really little, because we never had dessert. I came from a super, super healthy house growing up in Australia. And so I sliced blood oranges, like um, just sort of um, peeled them and, um, uh, with a sharp paring knife and then sliced them into pinwheels. And then I got some medjool dates and just chopped them really finely and like tossed the um, blood oranges with medjool dates. And that makes this kind of lovely sweet sugar, uh, sort of syrup, the medjool dates really um, sweet in the kind of orange juice. And then I layered them on the bottom. And then I got some thick Greek yogurt on the top, put it on the top, and then I finished it. I would have finished it with soft brown sugar, like muscovado, but I actually finished it with coconut sugar because I knew she wouldn't appreciate it. And you put it in the fridge and let it set, and, it, and the sugar melts. It becomes like this sort of brulee, not, like not a set um, brulee, but kind of like a caramel on the top. And then you've got this thick kind of, it's like a trifle, but kind of super healthy. And I actually probably knocked that up in about four and a half minutes. I thought you were going to say four and a half So hours. did I. I was like... like four and a half minutes. It was so quick. And like, I mean, it, it, was, it was... The audience was like quite young. That I, but it was very well received. Sounds absolutely delicious. that all sounds doable. And we've all got ourselves into a situation at the moment where, you know, we've all been living, you know, two metres from our fridges. So we're, I feel like I'm permanently hungry but I've also lost my appetite. And that's like yeah. a metaphor for life at the moment. And it's a weird, it's a weird way to be, isn't it? Yeah, you know, you're not hungry, but you're always on the search for something. I mean, there's something so missing in our lives. There's, there's so little, I mean, I, I think I really miss life admin. And I never thought I'd miss that kind of Saturday morning, which I used to be a bit humphy about, you know, like either going to the dry cleaner or needing to get my, I don't know, shoes mended or, like going to pick up something from the health food shop or all those kind of little errands I used to do. And I'm just dreaming of doing things I like know, that because again. because when they go, you, you lose you lose the sense of achievement you get from, yeah. oh, I finally took those shoes in. I finally dropped the dry cleaning off. I finally yeah. bought some stamps. And, and, and also what you also lose is the micro connections you get with, yes, thank you so much. Yes, I'll pick them up on Wednesday. Okay. Yes, how's your wife? You know, all those little things. So we sort of, you know, I just sit here staring it's, at my chicken Kiev, wondering what yeah. happens next. Yeah, I also think we're just missing kind of emotional nourishment from all that stuff you know and mm. external kind of the context Annabelle's always talking about context and I think it's true we're missing the context of our lives so when we reduce it to exactly the two meters walk from the kitchen table to the fridge and then back to the sofa to put on Netflix it's it does it is like a sort of terrible reduction well do you know what I mean I think food has been put under a lot of pressure because if we weren't emotional eaters before we sure as hell are now because yeah. you need it to deliver <laughs> And I think it's been very, like, I think it's been very, you can really observe it on social media, can't you? You know, like when we all first went into lockdown, everybody like um, was like trying to um, make sourdough for the first time or bake banana bread or people were putting up all these things and they really had this kind of space to connect. And I, I felt that people seemed to be really enjoying that kind of aspect of, it felt like, oh, wow, now I've got some space. I can do that cooking that we that Sunday afternoon cooking that we were talking about a little bit before. 
And I've seen it with the shop as well. You know, people, you know, the veg boxes went crazy when we first put them up, you know. And that lasted for about six weeks. And then people were like, please don't give me a vegetable box where I don't understand what a celeriac really is and what the hell am I going to do with a beef What am I meant to do with a turtle? <laughs> exactly, you know. And then people have really embraced, like, you know, any of the kind of pre-cooked meals we do now have, like, is exponentially the most that um, thing that we sell on the shop. And we really have to try and keep on pushing the veg boxes and stuff like that. Because Take my turnips. <laughs> Take my turnips, exactly. And so that's interesting. I think it has, um, it has really changed over the extended period of time that we've been forced to live this way. I'm sure it's why a lot of people are doing recipe boxes, isn't it? Because it's a middle way yeah. between a vegetable yeah. box and a ready meal. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you don't have to think, but you can still do a bit of chopping and you know, exactly. stirring. Exactly, yeah. Um, so yeah. there's a, there's a sense of achievement, but no, it, it, it's. I mean, I, I sort of feel almost feel sorry for food. I think that it's been asked to deliver above and beyond. Um, but I I think that you know the. I, I, how do you feel about reopening? You know what? It's interesting because I feel like I felt so desperate on the first lockdown. Like I just couldn't actually conceive of what had happened. You know, I think for a lot of people too. You know, you stand in this restaurant. I remember the announcement that Boris Johnson made on the seventeenth. He said nobody go to pubs, clubs, restaurants theatres but he didn't shut us down so it was like what and so all of a sudden all your bookings and all your plans and your events you had just kind of went and then we locked down like you know if someone had said to me now in a year you're, you're going to still be sort of we opened six weeks last year altogether the actual restaurant after lockdown and I was so anxious I didn't know what was going to happen and I think then we did open in July and it was so encouraging to see people wanting to come out I thought maybe no one's ever going to come to a restaurant again you know and so I, I have that sort of body of evidence for reopening that actually people, people do want to come out and they do want to. And there was this real, real appreciation of people coming out and sort of maybe wanting to think about the wine they drank, you know, and talk to the sommelier or take a dessert. You know, well, like actually, a, a, a great friend of mine who's a, who's a restaurateur said what was interesting was that um, there were there were fewer covers. I think his is quite crowded, but people yeah. were spending more. They wanted to drink the good yeah. wine. They wanted it's to true. have a proper experience. I would agree with that wholeheartedly, yeah. And then so, and I do feel I want to wait until, I don't want to open and close again. It's been really painful for everybody who's on furlough, that has been the hardest for us. You know, we opened in October, November again, and then they closed us down, and then we opened for two weeks. So I'd rather wait until we do, we're not going to close again. Like, I, I'm sure that's the same for kids at school. My God, you know, they can't do their kind of open close, and all the parents who are trying to navigate their lives. But I feel excited. It's going to be like opening a new restaurant, so I'm really... Because when, we when will you open? When will you open spring? We'll open on the 19th of May, if everything's okay, which is a Wednesday, and we're going to open slowly. So we're not going to open, uh, we're just going to open for evenings. Um, we've kind of got a little timetable we've put in place, but we are in the middle of the West End, you know, and we do rely on theatre goers, certainly lots of tourists in the, you know, in the middle of Covent Garden, a lot of office, especially our lunches are full of people. We're by, right by the law courts here and in the middle of Somerset House. So, you know, we do, I, I, I think it's going to be a slow return. I think there'll be people who want to come out for special occasions. But actually doing a business lunch at spring midweek won't be there. Whereas, whereas when I think about it, I think, you know, because it's so, you know, it's so beautiful, your restaurant. It's just so beautiful. It's like, I would say it's almost cathedral-like. It's so gorgeous. Mm. Um, and actually, as a Londoner, I'm like, great. No tourists, no theatre girls. I'll be able to park. See you on yeah. May the 19th, you know. Yeah. 
Well, we'll see. You know, it's interesting. I mean, most restaurants for their success rely on regular customers. You know, that's what we really need. We really need the guys who, who come and eat at our restaurant, you know, once or twice a month. You know, some people eat three times a week, you know, if their office is around the corner. And we need that. You know, the one-off customer from New York is lovely, but, you know, they're not going to pay the bills really at the end. So, I mean, it's just... Um, It'll be interesting. I think I think neighbourhood restaurants will have a much quicker return than we do, probably. And will you go back with new menus, new ideas, new everything? Yeah. Yes. I mean, look, I, the idea, I'm writing the events menus now, and it's just like, everyone's like, when are you, you going to, you know, I'm like, come on, events menus. And I'm like, I just haven't written a menu properly. I'm so <laughs> out of the swing of doing it. And I'm like, what, you know, I'm coming, I, I've missed the whole year's kind of like, produce really and I'm opening it's like Groundhog Day I'm we're opening with the ingredients that we closed with which is really interesting that's really interesting because you want to mark the difference you're like oh I wonder if I could do chicken in a pot for for everybody (laughs) yeah today Um, we've got today we've got chicken in a pot and then some posset but you can have bread and cheese if you want (laughs) (laughs) exactly so it's it's really you know you kind of get used to anything it's a bit Stockholm syndrome isn't it kind of like quarantine you know I'm kind of nervous in a way I feel that I feel that about um about going out and seeing people and not really understanding who I am or what I represent or what I can say or how to be or whether we've even got the energy to restart you know it's harder to you know to 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 start the ignition isn't it than just to sort of slightly put your foot down when you're already moving yeah I mean I ran into someone in the park the other day and I know I really have lived in a bubble like at work and home and I there's I haven't really seen any friends properly for a year and I literally started speaking and I was so embarrassed by what came out (laughs) we've all been there we hear you I mean he looked at me like he was so confused by me (laughs) and I was just like I mean I called him we talked about his height for some reason and I said you're a person of indiscriminate height and he went what and I said I'm so sorry I don't even know what that means that I said that you know and the more I sort of tried to kind of get out of it the more I felt like I dug myself in a hole but I think it's everyone like my youngest daughter is like 23 and she's like, I feel so socially anxious to see yeah. anyone. Yeah, I know. I know. And it's sort of all that stuff matters much more when you're 23. Yeah. You know, in a way, in a way, if I'm a bit of a dick in the park, I just take it as yeah. just another time when I've been a dick in <laughs> exactly. my life. On the long list. Of, on the long uh, list of dickishness. It's just another in the catalogue. It's just, but when you're 23, it really matters and it really hurts. Yeah. And, I mean, that is the brilliant thing about getting older. You just don't give a shit where anyone, you know, like sometimes I just find myself saying things that I know I don't care anymore. <laughs> like, there's this lovely freedom, though, isn't it, of speaking your mind. Do you know what? I think it's worked. I feel like going and planning some different sort of dinners, thanks to Sky. I feel like eating out, which I think is, which is really interesting because that's the first time in a long time I've thought, oh, actually going to a restaurant sounds heaven. Someone handing you a menu. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and saying, can I help yeah. you with that? I mean, I think the thing to kind of reignite yourself just a little bit is if you can, like, um, kind of keep away from... I mean, I know people have food delivered at home, but even if you go for a walk on your high street, like, I've got a... My high street, um, my closest kind of nice street would be um, Turnham Green in Chiswick that I could walk to. You know, and it has got a butcher and a fishmonger. And Natura. Really, Natura, exactly. And like, just go into the tour and just see that kind of beautiful pink radicchio or a couple of blood oranges. And like, don't think about doing anything to them except enjoying them. 
And I think that will make you kind of feel re-inspired a little bit. Don't overcomplicate, strip everything right back as opposed to trying to overcomplicate things now. And I think you might get inspiration from the simplicity. Feels like a metaphor for life. Sky, okay. thank you Brilliant. so much. Oh, thank thank you, you so much. Bye. You've been listening to Annabelle Rivkin and Emily McMeekin of The Mid-Alt. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. And we'll just leave you with this thought. It's someone's birthday somewhere. Eat cake. Eat cake.